Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. But to try to approximate a real instrument, you have to work three or four times as hard as if you had the opportunity to, to bring in a live musician. So the trade-off is, is always that. But I think, once again, that's where my more classical, traditional background came into play, because I approach writing on the computer using sampled orchestral sounds the same way that I would approach it as if I was orchestrating it for real players. So my, my attitude is always, whatever it is that I write has to be playable by real people, because if it's not that I'm failing at the purpose for doing what I do. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning into Piano Whisperer for this podcast episode. I'm so excited to have with me today, Kay Zalatrakshi. With a career spanning more than two decades, music composer, writer, and film director Kay Zalatrakshi has received an impressive amount of press, industry, accolades, and awards. Born in Florence, Italy, Kay's discovered a passion for music composition at an early age under the direction of accomplished classical music tutors. After graduating cum laude with a film scoring degree from Boston's prestigious Berklee College of Music, Kay's rapidly became one of the key creative forces in the emerging Florida film and music scene during the mid-1990s including a prolific songwriting partnership with Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20, Kay's connected with visionary filmmaker Dan Myrick, with whom he continues a creative relationship to this day. Kay's and Myrick began collaborating on a number of projects, including the beginnings of what would eventually become one of the most successful independent films of all time, The Blair Witch Project. After The Blair Witch Project's incredible success, Kay's, along with Daniel Myrick and several of the other Florida filmmakers involved, relocated to Los Angeles. Kay's uncompromising work ethic and dedication, coupled with an innate curiosity for technology, has yielded wildly innovative original music. His unique approach has resulted in a number of critically acclaimed film scores for such studios as Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony Pictures, Lionsgate, ABC, NBC, Disney Channel, Sci-Fi, Lifetime, MTV, Showtime, and Discovery Channel, and many more. His work has generated multiple awards, including Best Soundtrack for the Thriller Cutting Room at the Milan International Film Festival. He also has won five Crystal Reel Awards for Best Music Project, a National Telly Award, an Ellis Award, an Instant Films Award, and two Addy Awards. There are many reviews of his work that I could read, but I'll limit it to three. Variety Magazine's Alyssa Simon said about one of his films, the film's best contribution is the otherworldly score by Kay's Alatrachi. Adam Lopez, festival director of the Toronto After Dark Film Festival, said, Rarely does a soundtrack play such a major supporting role as Kay's Alatrachi's beautiful, moving score. Howard Feinstein of Screen Daily said, Respect is shown for the culture by Kay's Alatrachi's superb indigenous score. Kay's music can also be heard on a number of shows like American Idol. True Life, The Apprentice, World War II in HD, So You Think You Can Dance, Jersey Licious, The Dog Whisperer, Mob Wives, Celebrity Fit Club, Unique Whips, Pimp My Ride, The New Season of Who Do You Think You Are, and Super Nanny, as well as many theatrical feature film trailers, commercials, and on-air promos. His upcoming feature film, The Astronaut in the Woods, 
is currently in development with plans to go into production in spring 2020. Wow. Welcome, Case. I'm so glad you're here. Hello, Ben. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be on your podcast. Oh, well, thank you for joining me. You've had such an interesting start in life. Your parents, from what I understand, were both artistic. You were born in Florence, Italy, one of the most artistic places on earth. And then you relocated to Orlando as a teen. So you went from Michelangelo to Disney. I would love to hear about your early influences and musical life, your transition to the States, and how that transition impacted you. Well, first of all, yes, both of my parents are artistic. My mom is, she's a painter. My dad is an architect. Uh, he came from like an architectural background. So so his flavor of art was a little bit more kind of technology and kind of precision driven, if that's the right way to describe it. And I think that having both of those influences into my life, I think it's what gave me my love for both the artistic side, but also like the technology. I've always kind of been very, very interested in the technological side of the art. And I think that's why I also gravitated towards uh, film music. The thing about growing in Florence, I mean, it was amazing, but just like uh, any other place that we all grow into, we tend not to recognize the benefit of being in that place until maybe we move away from it. And all of a sudden we come to realize just how lucky we were to be there in the first place. Totally. Yeah. The thing that always strikes me nowadays when I go to Florence, where uh, my mom still lives there, is um, how relatively mundane and very kind of casual people interact with art and history that is literally like a thousand years old or older. It's not unusual, for instance, to see a bank ATM machine somehow fitted and nested inside a little nook of uh, this medieval church. Such a juxtaposition of eras and technology. And But once again, when I was growing up there, you tend not to really pay attention to those things. But, but now that I go back, it's striking. It's like, oh my God, like that's insane, you know? And uh, also walking in these cobblestone streets and thinking to yourself at some point, maybe I'm retracing the steps of Michelangelo or, or Dante or uh, all of these historical figures. Once again, when I grew up there, I wasn't really thinking about that stuff. I think I have a much deeper appreciation for it today than I did when I was actually living there. It had to have formed your inner visual sense though. I would think just being around that beauty whether you're aware of it or not, had to have influenced how you saw things, I, I would imagine. I'm sure it did. <laughs> you can disagree. It's okay. No, no, no. It's, good. No, no, no. I mean, it's impossible to detach yourself from all the influences of growing up and, and also, you know, like of continuing to uh, grow. I think it gave me appreciation for all types of art. It didn't create a sense of selection for when it comes to art and when it comes to creativity, because I was exposed to sculptures and architecture and paintings and poetry and literature. And because of that, I think I became enamored with all of those things and as opposed to like being focused on only one type of discipline. Yeah, one medium. Mm -hmm. So then you transitioned to the States and here you are in Orlando, the home of Disney. Yes. So how did that transition impact you? It was eye-opening for me. Now, you have to understand I was 11 years old, going on 12. Growing up in Italy up until that point, America truly felt like a different planet. 
especially back then, we didn't really have the internet, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have uh, Twitter, Snapchat. And so coming from Europe, flying over this immense ocean and going to this country that was just like, it's considered around the world as the leading edge in technology and creativity and just larger than life. So for me, as, as still a kid, uh, it was... <laughs> It was genuinely like going to Disneyland. It was surreal. It was really surreal. So it was exciting. Would you say it was exciting coming here? Oh, I mean, it was beyond exciting. It was uh, It was as if somebody today said, hey, you're going on a trip to Mars or something like that. You know, it, it really was that. It was like living a dream. It was amazing. And it didn't disappoint, by the way. <laughs> That's great, because I can't imagine you're in Italy and Florence and then your parents say, oh, you're going to be moving to America. But your thought was... All right. Sounds like a good adventure. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is happening in my life. This is yeah. amazing. Ah. I'll give you another practical example. The year before my family moved to the States, the space shuttle, like the original space shuttle was launched. I think it was 1981. That was a historic thing. I was in Italy for that. I still remember watching on TV. I mean, for me, that was the equivalent of men setting foot on the moon. I couldn't even conceive that a year later, I would be in Florida watching the next space shuttle go into space with my own eyes. Yeah, it was amazing. So coming to the U.S. brought you a different set of experiences, and it had to have been different also going to a U.S. high school. But here you made friends and began playing in bands and so forth. It was at this time that you met and played in a band with singer Rob Thomas, who went on, of course, to sing with Matchbox 20. Tell us what kind of music you were playing in the States here in that time period and what was inspiring to you at that time? Were you having fun? I was, I was having fun. I was having probably a little too much fun, as most kids do. Going into high school was definitely a culture shock because if you can imagine, it's already a fairly traumatic experience for anybody. And for me, it was that much more so because I didn't really speak the language very well. I mean, I had like some very, very basic rudimentary vocabulary at my disposal. I was immediately the outsider, the new kid in town and integrating into this brand new world. Once again, think that for me, it was like going on a different planet. It was very difficult at first. And the first thing that I realized that actually helped me communicate and make friends was music because I knew how to play music. And all of a sudden, people were not looking at me like, oh, you know, there's that new nerdy kid. Let's make fun of him. But it's like, hey, he plays music. That's kind of cool. Let's go talk to him. And that really became a huge, huge way for me to break these barriers, these cultural barriers. I don't want to sound like hyperbolic here, but it really, really saved me from, from being like that kid that like, has no friends. And how did they find out you were playing music? How was that discovered? The way it was discovered was actually that I was riding my bike to go to my piano lessons. And as I was riding my bike, I saw in my neighborhood, there was this, uh, this guy that became like one of my best friends, Tracy. He stopped me as kids do. And he's just kind of chatting. He's like, Hey, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to my piano lesson. And all of a sudden that kind of became this kind of interesting thing. It's like, Oh, you play piano. That's, that's kind of cool and different. But I think that probably what made me, I want to say a little bit more interesting than just 
playing piano was the fact that I had a synthesizer at the time that was a fairly rare kind of thing. And cool to boot. And it was very cool. Not as cool as playing guitar, but, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> and once again, that was my desire of knowing technology and being so attracted to technology. And I think that when this kid came over to my house, I said, yeah, come over, I'll show you a little rudimentary music, whatever it is that I was uh, creating at the time. And it just took him to get the word out to everybody else. And the next thing I know is that I'm being stopped in the hallway at school when people are kind of asking me questions about it and they want to come over to my house and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's just kind of grew from there. And what kind of lessons were you taking at that time? Were you taking classical lessons or were you venturing out into pop lessons at that point? What were you doing? So (laughs) that's a bit of a funny story too. I learned classical music. I came from like a traditional classical background. But once again, when I came to the United States, I really discovered pop music. And that was thanks to MTV. MTV was another one of those revolutionary things. I would literally want to run home from school so that I could turn on the channel and watch MTV for like three or four hours. And then I would (laughs) go up to my room and I would be inspired by what I just saw. and, And I'd start writing music and playing keyboard and stuff. And when my parents signed me up for piano lessons here in the States, in Orlando, I didn't want to do the traditional stuff anymore. And my piano teacher, I think mistakenly said, hey, you know, if there's some music that you prefer to play, you can bring it and we'll learn that. So I started showing up with AHA and Duran Duran. And I remember Van Halen Jump that was oh, like yeah, a big sure. synthesizer. Of course. And that's what I all of a sudden like wanted to play. And I think much to his frustration, because uh, that was definitely not something that he was quite as excited about as I was. And so. <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's great. I mean, it's a good teacher, though, that's willing to say, okay, what's inspiring this kid and working with it. Now, from what I understand, you love both film and music. And I read somewhere, and I wish I could remember where, that your love for storytelling was apparent early on. And Uh, you would direct your friends in these elaborate science fiction and action narratives shooting these episodes on your father's camcorder. Did you feel torn between music and film? Did you even think about it? Did you think early on that these might be career paths for you? What were your thoughts? So depending on your listenership, this might come as somewhat shocking to to some of you guys listening out there. But uh, (laughs) when I grew up, there was no internet. <laughs> there was no YouTube. All of these amazing things that kids have access to nowadays, we didn't have access to. For me, yes, I loved filmmaking. My dad had this early camcorder that was this, I don't know, it, it must have weighed like 50 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> he always was very reluctant to, to let me go out and play with it. There was no way to edit. You couldn't do visual effects. You, you couldn't do anything. So literally like editing was hit record and then like stop and then hit record again for the next scene and stop and, and so on and so forth. And you kind of get what you get. And music was a lot more approachable at that time. So yes, I would have loved to pursue more film-driven, creative things. I just didn't really have the means. Nowadays, my iPhone can shoot basically a movie. I mean, you know, like there's people making feature films. The latest Lady Gaga music video was shot on an iPhone, and it looks amazing. But at the time, it just didn't exist. So I literally just kind of went after the thing that I felt 
gave me the more tools that I could slowly get my hands on. And of course, as I mentioned, one of them being a synthesizer and the very next thing that I was able to save up allowances and eventually buy was a cassette four track, which um, really opened up possibilities at that point. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay. So then you got to Berkeley College of Music and you mentioned in your podcast with Derek Diamond that culture shock shaped you. So I would be interested in hearing about your Berkeley experience and how that impacted you. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely another culture shock for sure. Here's what tends to happen. And I mean, of course, I can only go by my experience, but I suspect that it's similar for other people that go to Berkeley. You tend to become a little bit like your hometown hero, right? When I was in high school, by the time I graduated high school, I was the popular kid in the sense that I was in a band. Rob Thomas um, was the singer of that band. Of course, you know, he was not famous at the time, but uh, he was very charismatic even back then. And you just kind of feel very cocky. You feel like you're on top of your game. And all of a sudden, for me, going to Berkeley, it was a reality check, for sure. You walk in like you think you, it's like, just wait till they get a load of me. And you quickly realize, no, uh-uh, everybody else is at least as good as you, if not better, and generally like much, much, much better. So all of a sudden... I was humbled. It was a humbling experience for sure. It happened so fast, immediately. I remember um, the guy that lived next door to me. His name was John Dryden. He was an amazing, amazing pianist. Just incredible. I just, I, I couldn't even conceive how he was doing some of the things that that he was doing on on the keyboard. And as I said, like it was definitely humbling, and it was definitely a shock. <laughs> I can totally relate. Then there's the whole ratings thing, which is another story in and of itself, uh, yeah, right? I, um, I, will, um, I will not reveal my numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Neither will I. That's so funny. All right. So you studied film scoring there, though, intensely. And of course, you went on to score dozens of films professionally, receiving all kinds of awards. And even though I took intro to film scoring myself at Berkeley, all I really remember is watching Jaws with Michael Rendish's <laughs> intro class. We listened to it two ways, once with music and once without. And basically without music, Jaws was like a comedy, but with the music, of course, it's it's horrifying, which illustrated the power of those two notes, right? Sure. So my question though, I've always had film scoring questions because it just seems so challenging to me. But when you're film scoring, essentially you have a film that you're scoring with these visual events happening in real time requiring musical treatments at those specific moments. And the scene has this limited specific duration and you need to create something musical that sounds natural and undisturbed by all of these requirements. It just seems inconceivable. How, how do you do that? And can you walk us through the process? I had a thought in mind to pretend that we have like a 30 second scene that needs music and you have a specific event that needs a musical treatment at 10 seconds. Can you tell us how you might approach that? And if there's a better way to illustrate it, by all means, go for it. Unlike songwriting, unlike writing music for the sake of writing music, which I would say is like really the purest form of writing music, when you're writing for film, you have to put yourself in a mindset where you have to understand that even though you might want to write a certain type of music because that's what you're in the mood for, it might not necessarily be what the director has in mind. And you have to be very respectful of that relationship and vice versa, of course. 
the first thing that I do is usually have a meeting with the director and really discuss what does this movie mean to him or her? What does this scene mean? What are the characters? What's going on inside the characters' minds? What is the emotional content that is trying to project with the words that the characters are saying and the pacing of the edit and the lighting and all those kind of things. And it's always a bit of a trial and error to try to understand that vision because sometimes the vocabulary isn't there. A lot of directors are not particularly well-versed with musical terms. So you end up trying to kind of figure out tricks and ways that you can actually communicate some pretty complex musical ideas in such a way that they're going to understand so that ideally you don't get yourself into that trap where somebody will come to you and say, well, I don't really know what I want, but I'll know it when I hear it. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be agonizing. But how do you map it out so that certain things happen at specific times while keeping the integrity of the flow? I I just, to me, seems like a big mystery. I always have this uh, saying, and actually uh, going back to my growing up in Florence, there was this statues that Michelangelo sculpted, but he didn't sculpt them in full. He sculpted just enough of them that you could see this shape, this body inside the stone, inside this huge block of marble. And I think he called them the, the prisoners. I believe what he said, and I probably am misquoting him, is that the statue has always been there and he's just liberating it by chipping away at all this extra material. I look at scoring a scene very much the same way. The music is already there. It's been decided by the way the actors are speaking, the rhythm of the edit, the pacing, the lighting that sets the mood, and of course, the words that the characters are saying. So I I look at it very much the same way. The music is already there, and my job is to bring it to life, to liberate it, so to speak. And that's my approach. I just watch the scene over and over again. I don't touch the keyboard. I usually just allow my mind to wander and to start creating in my head some moods and ideas while watching it. But this process for me is is critical. I have to fully immerse myself into the cinematic element of the scene. And all of a sudden, like I'll start hearing things in my head and I'll start, <laughs> sometimes I'll be like, no, no, no. That's not going to work. And sometimes there will be, you know, maybe some melody, some mood, like a percussive hit or something that will pop up in my head as I'm watching, as I'm watching this movie over and over. And that's when I move to the keyboard and I'll say, okay, that could work. Let's try it. Let's realize it and see how that fits. But I will tell you right now that trial and error is definitely part of it. And for every score that I've created, I can show you on my computer, there are at least two or three times as many pieces of music that I wrote for it that ultimately I decided just don't work. That's a common theme I've heard from all facets, really, of music creation, whether it's songwriting, whether it's film scoring. That's really insightful and interesting. So let's listen to one of your compositions, which you wrote 
for the grand opening of a multi-billion dollar vacation resort, Atlantis, in the island of Sanya, just off the coast of China. This was an enormous one-night live show with over 600 VIPs in attendance and over 150 people in the cast and crew alone. This show live streamed to 1.7 million people around the world. So let's take a listen and then we'll talk about it. can say really is wow and that is a huge score can you tell us how many musicians were involved in that piece and can you tell us about the orchestration it sounds like you used some native instruments but i realize some of that may have been digital it uh, didn't sound like it but i would love to know what you did to get such a rich sound out of that orchestration sure uh, <laughs> the answer is probably not as glamorous as you might want to hear, but there weren't as many musicians involved. There were amazing musicians, a handful of them that uh, I was able to bring on board. Part of the reason why we didn't get a chance to work with a larger orchestra was really it came down to time 
the deadline was so, so tight and there was just no time, logistically speaking, to kind of prepare all the parts, to orchestrate all the parts and so on and so forth. So I had to think very strategically. Part of the reason why I was hired is because I have a deep love for world music. So at the beginning of the process, of course, I always tend to immerse myself whatever style of music that I, that I might be asked to create. And in this particular case, it was such rich culture of Chinese musical tradition. And China is like such a huge country. Whatever sources you might try to learn from and listen to, you're just scratching the surface because, of course, geographically different parts of China sound very different. So all I could do is really just, just hint at it. And I think living in Los Angeles has spoiled me a little bit because I have access to some truly world-class musicians. I was able to bring this musician who plays the guzheng, which is a very long harp of sorts that it's usually like it sits horizontally and the performer kind of sits on it the same way that they might sit at a piano. It's played either by being plucked or um, they have these little hammers, almost like a zither type of instruments. This performer, Bei Bei Ling, came over to my studio and recorded all of this music that I prepared for her. Hopefully she wasn't too offended by my uh, relatively rudimentary interpretation of, of music that she knows deeply well. That was really a treat. And I think it really added a great deal of authenticity to the sound. And the other person that was really, really critical in that score that really helped tremendously was this cello player. His name is Cameron Stone. That name might not necessarily say much to people. Cameron, not only is he an amazing human being and an incredible performer, but he has played on so many records and TV shows. It's almost ridiculous to try to kind of wrap your head around like just how much of his playing people around the world have heard. But I will mention one thing because I didn't know actually when he came over. I mean, I knew that he plays on, on a bunch of really, really great stuff. But what he told me, he said, when he came over, he said, I can come over to your studio, record the parts, but we have to do it on this date because the very next day he was leaving and he was going on tour with uh, Ramin Jawadi for uh, the Game of Thrones live experience. And basically when he was in the studio, I was like, uh, are you playing the Game of Thrones as a hired musician or, or have you been working with Ramin on the actual score? And he's like, no, no, that's me. When you hear the theme of Game of Thrones, he's like, that's, that's my plane. And I'm like, it just blew my mind. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was literally yeah. like, oh my God, I can't believe this guy is sitting right here in my studio recording <laughs> this thing. So. Well, it, it means that you've come a long, long way, Case. You're really great at what you do and you're going to attract those kinds of musicians. And I think that speaks of what you're doing. Well, thank you. So the strings, the horns, the that was all digital? That was all digital, except for uh, some of the percussion that I usually play myself here in the studio. I always say that in order to be able to approximate, because you can never really truly capture, you can never truly equate a real instrument, but to try to approximate a real instrument, you have to work three or four times as hard as if you had the opportunity to to bring in a live musician. So the trade-off is, is always that. But I think, once again, that's where my more classical, traditional background came into play because I approach writing on the computer using sampled orchestral sounds 
the same way that I would approach it is if I was orchestrating it for real players. So my, my attitude is always, whatever it is that I write has to be playable by real people, because if it's not that I'm failing at the purpose for doing what I do. You mentioned to me that this piece is near to your heart. So can you talk about that? Every project that I work on, there's always that one piece that's, I don't know, for, for lack of a better term, you feel like it's just kind of divinely inspired, maybe. I don't know. There's just something, you know, so that it comes to you and it feels different. It feels like, oh, oh my God, like this is, it's special. Yeah. There's something about it that of all the cuts you did, you felt a deep personal connection with it. Yeah. I mean, it, it just kind of felt like it's coming from somewhere else. You're always kind of trying to obviously keep being as objective as possible about your own work. But every once in a while, you tend to write something and you're like, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. I would, you know, if, if it wasn't coming from me, I'd, I'd be like, man, this place. Is... But, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to sound like I'm full of myself. I'm, I, try, I try not to be. Not at all. You, on the contrary, you sound humble. Did you feel pressure scoring for such a huge live show? I mean, it's quite different than scoring for film, right? Yes, it is. This was crazy. It was uh, one of the craziest experiences of my life. <laughs> As I mentioned before, the schedule was very, very tight. And I was given, I think, about like uh, three weeks to, to bring it all together from literally from having no idea what this is about to, okay, here's the tracks and we're sending them via internet over to China. So what made this project particularly crazy was this. The director of the show was in England, Paul Blurton, like really amazingly creative guy. He was like in London at the time. There was another contingent of this production company. I was in Los Angeles. The choreographer for the show that was working with the dancers was in Hong Kong. The star of the show is the singer that was in Australia. <laughs> it was a challenge just to figure out an hour, a time of the day that we could all get on the same phone call together just to discuss what was going on. I can't even imagine. Yeah, that's crazy coordination. Yeah, I mean, I was being sent videos of the rehearsals by the choreographer. I would watch the videos and, and those came with her notes and she would say, can you lengthen this section because I want my dancers to do some more here or can you shorten this or can we speed this up or can we put like a, a, a big hit here and so on and so forth. There was a lot of that. And, and of course, by the time I would uh, get uh, notes, it was already uh, literally like, I think like the next day for them. <laughs> So they were like kind of waiting on me. <laughs> and I, I knew like when, you know, I would wake up in the morning, check my email, see like a page of notes. And I knew that I had to just move very, very quickly and send the files back to them because they were waiting on me. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> That's pressure. Yeah. I'm just so glad that you were able to share that. I really genuinely enjoyed listening to your work. So you've approached art really from two angles creating films by developing the imagery first and then scoring film by setting the music to existing imagery. Is one process more fun for you right now than the other? I, I love both, but I admit that after going on 30 years of writing music, embarking on a more of a directing, creating films, a more visual 
skill set is exciting and it's new and I love learning and I know so little about it that every day brings some new knowledge. And to me, that's very exciting. Of course, there's still so much more that I, that I need to learn about music. But you're feeling invigorated, right? By the, all the new learning and it makes you feel alive, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, every day when I wake up, I'm like, what am I going to learn today? What is going to be that exciting new thing that, I don't know, that I learn? And, and every day I learn something. Sometimes not the, I, don't, I don't always learn like the most useful things, but I learn something. That gives me reason to continue, for sure. I can imagine that working on both ends of the film, the visual and the audio, makes you better at what you do at both and maybe even influences how you see and score. I've watched several snippets of your films now, and I think you do an incredible job filming the imagination of your characters, capturing sort of their inner perspectives, and you beautifully capture the nuances in unspoken communication between characters. Do you think it's true what I'm suggesting about being benefited by having worked on both ends of the film, that your experience scoring has made you maybe a more sensitive visual director as well? First of all, thank you for your kind words. I'm, I'm still very much of a beginner in this, uh, in this medium. But yeah, absolutely. The thing that a lot of times people don't realize is that on a film set or on a film project, the director tends to be the least experienced of everybody else, right? If you think about it, it's, uh, it kind of blew my mind when I started thinking about it. Yeah, like, I mean, you might have a, a cinematographer that's worked on, I don't know, dozens of films, a composer that's worked on uh, dozens of films. The director maybe has directed one or two or maybe three films. And because of that, I've always kind of thought that if you start out from the directing side, you end up unavoidably having a limited amount of experience because the job itself, at least until you reach a certain stature, requires a number of years just to kind of get going, just for each project to, to, to get underway. As a composer, I got to work with dozens of film directors, and usually the relationship tends to be very hands-on. And I spend a lot of time with the director of the film that I'm working on. And sure, I will be working on the score and I will be um, creating the music that the film needs, but I will also be studying that director. I tend to really pay attention. I think it's my curiosity. I end up just kind of learning from them. So as a film composer, I had the benefit of learning from dozens of directors and just kind of seeing a little bit how they come to their decisions and their artistic process and how they communicate and how they uh, interact with uh, the rest of the crew and so on and so forth. So to me, that that is like a huge, huge benefit that I get to have because I came from composing. Unfortunately, many directors don't get to have. Yeah, that's super insightful. Now that you've moved into directing films and not necessarily doing the music, to all of them, right? Do you have a hard time letting go of the music or do you find yourself wanting to project your musical ideas onto the composer? Actually, to be honest with you, I've composed everything that I've directed, not necessarily out of choice, but sometimes by necessity, right? You're working with limited budgets and tend to have to wear multiple hats. I look forward to the opportunity to work on a project where I can work with another composer. 
because I'm a firm believer that film is one of the, it's very unique because it is a team effort. It is a group type of art form, whether ultimately the composer that you're working with or the cinematographer that you're working with or or so on and so forth, realize the vision that you had exactly the way you had it in, in your head or not. I think that's part of the process that needs to be embraced. What different brains, different people, different backgrounds, different... It's like more ingredients in the stew, right? I mean, the, yeah, the, the yeah, more... absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that the more the merrier when it comes to this creative art form. So, so for me, I look forward to the day when I get to work with another composer. I might end up being a real pain in the butt for that person or, or, <laughs> or not, or, or maybe it might turn out to be easier because I do have that musical vocabulary, but I think it'll be a lot of fun when I get a chance to, to work with someone else. I can imagine me personally, it'd be difficult, but at the same time, I do know that so much of good creative work is truly collaborative. Like one idea is a catalyst for the next idea from another person, which leads somebody else to come up with something else, how these ideas grow and, and develop. And if you're all in one brain, it doesn't happen. So I, I could get that. I can also understand being a control freak, which I am a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> how I would want to assert myself. So often when people listen to success stories of others, if they don't get inspired, they sometimes get discouraged. And so I think it's important for people to know that success is often a long process with many challenges along the way. Would you be willing to share either a story of struggle or even your most embarrassing professional (laughs) moment with listeners just so they could say, everybody goes through this? Sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs) No, it's okay. Yeah. Everything is a struggle. I would lie if I told you that it gets easier. It doesn't. It keeps being challenging, but that's what I love about it, of course. I mean, it's to me that's what drives me. It's like I don't want to I don't want to have easy. I love when a project comes to me and and really challenges me to create something that maybe I wouldn't have normally thought of. As far as like embarrassing professional moments, I mean Thankfully, I'm, I'm lucky that I haven't really had many. That was a choice. You could either talk about the struggle or the embarrassing moment. No, I don't need to put you on the spot at all. I just, I want, when someone hears this, wow, he's done all this stuff. He's done all these things. It's like, well, yeah, but it was a, an evolution of a long period of time. And there's so much trial and error. And when we look at someone, we see the finished product, right? But there was so much history infusing that. Oh, there's blood, sweat, and tears for sure. Every single one of them. So there is really so much more I wish we had time to cover. Like we didn't have time to talk about your love of technology and how you integrate it so effectively with live musicians and your music. But before we go, would you like to cover anything I missed or tell us about upcoming projects and how people can find out more about you? I always love to share whatever I create with other people. If they want to uh, hear some of my music, uh, they can go on my website, musicbyks.com. And if they're interested to see some of the my directing work, they can go on my filmmaking website, which is moviesbyks.com. So uh, I try to make it easy. I mean, aside from um, upcoming projects, I just finished producing a film, a short film for my uh, girlfriend, Christina. And we were shooting here at our house 
And it's literally, it's like a hurricane went through here. Because if you can imagine, all of a sudden we have uh, 20 different people, like cameras and lights all over the place. And and of course, I wasn't directing. I was just trying to make sure that everything ran as smoothly as possible. So it was a, a great experience for me. But I'm, I'm very excited now that we finished shooting it to see what comes out of it. And I'll be scoring it too, once again, not, not necessarily because it's understood that I would score her film, but because it, it makes the most sense with the resources that we have. If people kind of stay tuned through my website, Movies by K's, I'll probably be posting something about it very soon. Cool. That's exciting. Thanks for sharing that. And really a sincere thanks again for joining me. I am so appreciative that you took the time to chat with me. And I think you don't know how much you provided for people that I think is super interesting and and useful. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And listeners also, you're what makes this all worthwhile. So I really appreciate your tuning in. And of course, I'm incredibly grateful to Classic Pianos, who sponsors Piano Whisperer, making these podcasts possible. And to find out more about Piano Whisperer or to listen to previous episodes, please visit pianowhisperer.org. Or you can now find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and all of the major streaming platforms. Really am so privileged to be here doing these podcasts. And so again, a big thank you to everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.